I'm going to read tonight from the scriptures and I want to read from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, of course, is in the New Testament. One of his prison epistles. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. In heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, According to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath proposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in the earth, even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Amen. We know that the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this evening is taken from Ephesians chapter 1 and the verse 7. It reads, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And my theme tonight is simply this. Redemption through his blood. The Apostle Paul begins this powerful letter to the Ephesian church with a very long sentence in the Greek New Testament. And that sentence runs from the start of Ephesians 1 verse 3 right through to Ephesians 1 verse 14. It's a very long sentence in the Greek. And in this whole sentence, he blesses God for all the spiritual blessings that he has freely bestowed upon everyone who is in Christ. In verses 3 to 6, he blesses God the Father for his work as God the Father, who planned the great plan of redemption. In verses 7 through to 12, he unfolds the work of God the Son in purchasing the great plan of redemption. 
And then in verses 13 and 14, he sets forth the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in regard to our salvation, in that he provides or applies to us the great work of redemption. So I want you to understand that when he comes to Ephesians 1 verse 7, he's really starting a new section. And he's telling us about the work of God the Son. And what is he saying about the work of God the Son? He's saying this, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now I want us to think tonight about the theme, redemption through his blood. And I want you to think, first of all, about the subject of redemption. You see, when I think about the word redemption, I think of two things. I think about the need of redemption, and I think about the nature of redemption. Now, we'll ask ourselves a question. Why do we need redemption? I'll ask a second question. What is your greatest need tonight in this meeting? If you were sick and ill, you might think, well, my greatest need is to be healed of this sickness and illness. If you're unemployed, you might think, well, my greatest need is to get a job and get off the door. If you're single here, unmarried, you might think, well, my greatest need is to find a soulmate. If you're in a difficult marriage situation, you might think, well, my greatest need is for true harmony in my relationship between me and my wife. If you have young people that are addicted to drugs or drink, or some other substance abuse, you might think, well, my greatest need is to have my children set free from that addiction. Now, now, all these are important needs, and I will not undermine them. But I want to tell you tonight, that is not your greatest need. Your greatest need tonight, whether you realize it or not in this meeting, is to be delivered from your spiritual bondage and have your sins forgiven and be brought into a right relationship with the God of heaven before you die. Health, money, happy family, a good job, a nice home, a, 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 a nice car. They are all wonderful blessings. But you contrast these blessings with the reality of dying in your sin, living as a captive to the devil, dying without the knowledge of sins forgiven, dying without being reconciled to God in a right relationship with him. These other blessings, material and temporal that I've mentioned, will bring you no comfort if you're suffering eternal punishment for sin in the very cavern of hell itself. You see, the word redemption presupposes a very grave situation. It presupposes a big need. It presupposes captivity. It presupposes bondage and slavery to sin and Satan. And if we were not a fallen, sinful, enslaved people, there would be no need of redemption. Remember the psalmist said that he was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The psalmist went on to say, the wicked are estranged from their womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. And it was John the apostle that wrote in 1 John 5 and 19, the whole world lieth in wickedness. You see, fallen sinful man is under the dominion and control of the principle of sin. 
A fallen sinful man is under the control and domination of the devil. And fallen sinful man is under the curse of the law. And you see, there's loads of error abound today about this very subject. The, the devil has sowed the seeds of confusion. You think of the many that think, well, we don't need redemption. And rather than acknowledge and admit and be ashamed of their sin of thought and word and deed, they, they now celebrate and they take great prize in, in, in this. We need to be true to ourselves, Mr. McLaughlin. We, we need to engage in this freedom of thought and freedom of expression. But, but that's really rationalism. It's really rottenness under another guise. See, this thought that God is not holy and we're basically good people and God is so tolerant today that, that God would not condemn me. God will not brand me a sinner. God will not put me in hell. I'm not perfect. I, I'm not ter a terrorist. I'm not so bad. And we excuse and we overlook sin. And therefore we overlook and excuse the need for redemption. And if you do come to the place where you said, oh, you know, you're right, we do need redemption. Then where do we find it? Oh, well, we'll go to the church. We'll find it in religion. And all the major religions of the world teach that you can pray and you can fast and you can do good works and you can give alms to help pay for your sin and, and help to earn God's favor. And many religious people tonight in Northern Ireland base their hope of redemption and the forgiveness of sins on the basis of performing certain religious rituals. And yet here in Ephesians, and isn't it interesting that's to the Ephesian church that Paul writes these words, as well as Colossae, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Did you know that the Ephesians in the first century had their schools of philosophy? Do you know that they had their education centers of excellence? Did you know they had houses of ill repute? Did you know that they had many religious schools of thought? Did, did you know that uh, Ephesus was a, a, a seaport with, with, with riches and commerce galore? And when Paul came into that city, uh, in the midst of a seemingly happy people with their rationalism and their religion, what did Paul preach? What was his message? It centered in the person and work of Christ. He preached this, redemption through his blood. And the people came to hear the word of God. Many people got saved. A church was formed. And even those who were curators of the dark arts. Do you know what they had? They had a bonfire one night. Nothing to do with celebrating the 12th of July or anything like that. They had a bonfire and they burnt their books of the dark arts in the fire. And that was an indication that their lives had been changed and transformed because they had begun to experience redemption via the blood of Christ. <coughs> I want you to think also of the nature of redemption. Not only the need, we're just dealing with the first point, the subject. What did it mean to the man in the first century when he heard the word redemption? What did it mean to the people in the church at Ephesus? You see, I believe that his or her mind was filled with one picture. And this is what it was. The picture of a slave being purchased and set free. Because redemption meant release from bondage. Release from captivity by the payment of a price. It's really the act of buying back something that the Redeemer originally 
possessed. Do you think of our modern day pawn shop for the hard pressed working class? And they sell something to the pawnbroker and then months later they go back and they buy it back. They have redeemed that item. Redemption is the complete deliverance of penitent sinners from their spiritual bondage, from being under the curse of the law and being brought into the liberty of the sons of God by the purchase of the blood of Christ. And I want to tell you tonight, redemption is the theme of the whole Bible. It's promised in the Bible. It's prophesied in the Bible. It's portrayed in the Bible. It's preached throughout the pages of the whole Bible. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to it. And glory to God, everything in the New Testament proclaims it. The word also has its root in the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament book of Ruth, where there was redemption by a kinsman redeemer. Naomi's family property was lost due to debt. The family had fallen into hard times. And then the property went into the hands of another person. Naomi couldn't buy it back, remember? She was a widow. She had no husband. Her husband had died. They come back to Bethlehem, Judah, after 10 years in Moab. And Boaz was there and Boaz was a near kinsman and he had the right to redeem the property by paying a price. And that's exactly what he did. And that's the thought. And remember, the Old Testament Jews were commanded by God to redeem the firstborn son and the firstborn animal by paying a price. Exodus 13, 12 and 13. Numbers 18, verses 15 to 17. You can look it up. Think of Exodus 12, the blood of the Passover lamb and the lentil and the doorpost in the night of the death of the firstborn. And it's a picture of redemption through the blood. And, and the main idea in every illustration is carried over, released from bondage by the payment of a price. And redemption through the blood was the dominant theme of Paul's preaching. And it ought to be the dominant theme of our preaching. And we want to make it the dominant theme of our preaching in this church. It's the, the dominant theme of our prayer. For we pray in the ground of the shed blood. It's the dominant theme of our praise. And we're singing hymns about the blood tonight. And it ought to be the dominant theme of the practice of every true born again believer who has trusted in that blood for cleansing and forgiveness. We re refer the word in a spiritual sense, to Christ, paying the price of our sin by his own sacrificial death on our behalf of the tree. Remember, we're hopelessly enslaved to sin. We're under a just condemnation. And Christ, with his own blood on the cross, paid the penalty to release us from our bondage. And therefore, we're released from sin's penalty, which is death, Romans 6 and 23. We're released from sin's power. It no longer controls and dominates us, Romans 6, 14, right through to 18. And he saves us from sin's pleasure. He takes the love of sinning out of our hearts. He puts a new love, a love for himself. And that's all tied into this subject of redemption, the need and the nature. Remember, it's buying back through the payment of a price to bring about release. 
I want you to think, secondly, about the source of redemption. If you look at our text, it says, in whom? And we'll pause there. Because it refers back to Christ. Look at the last words in verse 6. Accepted in the beloved. Paul called Christ the beloved. Jesus Christ, remember, is God's beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In fact, he said this. Matthew 3, 17. Matthew 17. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. And God's beloved son, in the fullness of time, by his perfect sinless life, by his perfect substitutionary death and bloodshedding on the cross, obtained redemption for all who trust him as Lord and Savior. Now, I want you to understand this tonight. In Christ, we have redemption. Only in Christ, we have redemption. It's not in the church. It's in Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, we have nothing apart from Jesus. Now, think of that. You'll not find redemption in anyone else or anywhere else except in Christ. And all the blessings of God's free grace for all time, from eternity past to eternity to come, are all in Christ. Now, now understand this. There, Christ is the author of redemption. Christ was the one called and appointed to be the Redeemer by God the Father in eternity past in what we call the, the covenant of redemption. He, he agreed to it with the Father. The Father sent them in the fullness of time to accomplish redemption. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Christ is the only one who has the right and power to redeem sinners. Christ, with his own blood, entered into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Paul says in Hebrews 9 and verse 14, you think of the source of redemption. In Christ alone, we have redemption. And only in him, we have nothing apart from Jesus. Take that thought into your mind. I want you to think thirdly, very quickly, the siblings of redemption. It says in whom we, I will underline the word we, those who are actually redeemed. He doesn't say in him someday we hope to be redeemed. He doesn't say in him we are working to obtain redemption in the future. He doesn't say in him we have to wait until we see if our good works tip the scales in our favor so that we can be redeemed. No, he says in him we have redemption. In other words, it's our current possession. It's our current real experience. Redemption is in the present, the here and now. It's the possession, the everlasting possession of every believer. We were singing, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy. His child. And forever I am. Does that not fill your heart with joy and gratitude and love for Christ this evening? 
Should that not banish all your fear of judgment and banish every thought of hell to come? Should that not motivate us to be holy and live a life of purity? Should that not motivate us to be passionate about seeing souls saved? When you think of the we in the text, the whole of the sentence in that long sentence in the Greek from verse 3 to 14 supplies the answer. All who are blessed in heavenly places in Christ, verse 3. All who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, verse 4. All who are predestinated to the adoption of children. All who are accepted in the beloved. All who are forgiven their sins. All who have obtained an inheritance and grace. All who have faith in Christ. All who are sealed by the Spirit of God. All who are freed from sin. Freed from its control and dominion. Freed from the power of the devil. Freed from the curse of the law. We. This is what we have experienced. This is what we have as our current possession. I think of those words in Revelation 5 and verse 9 it says and they sung a new song saying thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation see see, there's a people and they're filled with joy and gratitude and praise and they have love and loyalty in their heart to Christ because they recognize we're the siblings of redemption we can sing Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. I want you to think also fourthly and quickly. The sum of our redemption. Notice it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Now this is very important that you grasp this. Jesus Christ on the cross shed his blood to redeem us from our sins and from being under the control of the devil. And I know that many are offended today by this truth and this teaching. Many want to minimize the doctrine of the blood. They want to get rid of it. They want to obscure it. They want to deny it. But you cannot get rid of the necessity of the blood sacrifice of Christ and believe the Bible. Because remember, redemption is taught throughout the scriptures. His blood represents his life. Sacrifice for us. Leviticus 17 and 11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. His blood, remember, is God's blood. In the book of Acts in chapter 20 and in the verse 28, it was the apostle Paul writing to this same church at Ephesus said this. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. You see, it's infinite in merit. It's omnipotent in its power. It's also the blood of the God-man. It was man that sinned and fell. And as a true man with a true humanity, the Lord Jesus must suffer in the stead of all that God the Father has given to him. Do you know something else? His blood's enough. Someone has written... Payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand. And then again at mine. His blood is covenant blood. Hebrews 13 and in the verse 20. It was the apostle 
that wrote to the Hebrew Christians and said this in Hebrews 13 and verse 20, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. His blood is precious blood. 1 Peter 1 and 18 and 19. His blood is sprinkled blood. Hebrews 9, 12 to 14. His blood is speaking blood, for it speaketh now in heaven better things than that of Abel. His blood is in heaven. Hebrews 9, 14. He, he, he entered in with his own blood to obtain eternal redemption for us. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty for sin. What if God just decided, I'm going to eliminate the penalty? Surely that would compromise his perfect justice. Imagine a judge saying to a murderer, you're guilty. You have performed and committed this crime, but you're free to go now. Don't do it again. Or what if he said that to a rapist? There would be an outrage. It would be in the papers. It would be on the news. They would be shouting, this is a miscarriage of justice. Down with the judge. You see, justice demands an appropriate price. And the murderer or the rapist or the thief, they, they must pay for their crime. The wages of sin is death. And you see, a just God demanded payment. And that payment involved the death of his son, the Lord Jesus. And it wasn't only that he died on the cross, it was that he died and shed his blood. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You see, the word blood is important. It's not just his death, but it's his blood. And all the animal sacrificial system, which Jesus Christ fulfilled in his perfect life and work as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, they were all fulfilled in him. I want you to know tonight you need to trust in that blood sacrifice of Christ. I want to ask you, have you received that blood sacrifice on your behalf? Have you thanked the substitute for bleeding and dying for you? Or are you tramping afresh in the precious blood? Have you rejected Christ? And remember, if you do, then you'll pay for your own sin. And you'll pay with it by eternal separation from God. In that place of the lake of fire where there's no second chance. And remember, that's your greatest need tonight. Your greatest need is to be able to say, I'm depending on the blood. What are you depending on? I want you to think, as we close, I want you to think of the sea of redemption. Notice what it says in the text, the forgiveness of sins. Here's the sea of God's pardon. A sea that's like a notion with no bottom. Because redemption through Christ's blood, the moment you receive by faith the sprinkling of that blood, all your sins are forgiven. And we know that redemption means more than forgiveness, but, but forgiveness stands first because it's the first and foundation of all that matters. Wherever there is redemption through his blood, there is forgiveness of sins. And you cannot have one without the other. Forgiveness was purchased by the blood of Christ. And it's freely given to us upon the merit of the blood. All past sins, all present sins, all future sins. Listen to what the psalmist said. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Micah tells us that God has cast them into the depths of his sea. 
Isaiah says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. You think of the stoutest of sinners. You think of the wickedest of sinners. You think of the vilest of sinners tonight. Can their sins be forgiven? No matter what they have said, no matter what they have thought, no matter what they have done, the answer is yes. The Bible says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. It was God that said, and I will remember your sins and iniquities no more. Every specific sin, every shameful, wicked sin, everything that you have thought, everything that you have said, everything that you have done, they're all forgiven. They're all forgiven in the ground of the blood. They're all covered with the blood. And it's crucial that you grasp that. It's crucial that you understand that tonight. Maybe you're here in this church and you're a child of God. You've trusted Christ for salvation. And you've sinned against him in some particular way and you feel guilty. And you've confessed your sin. You've sought his face for cleansing because remember he says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you still have that feeling of guilt. The devil has come and whispered into your ear. How could you be a child of God? You're not saved. You you couldn't be a Christian. Look what you have done. And you begin to doubt. And you begin to wonder. I want you to tell you something. How did the saints in the New Testament overcome the devil? They overcame him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of their lamb. And what was the word of their testimony? They were saying to the devil, Devil, you're right. But my salvation doesn't rest in my sinless performance. My salvation is rooted on the blood sacrifice of Christ. For it was the blood that paid the price for my sin. And I'm depending on the blood. And all your major sins and all your minor sins, you need to make sure they're under the blood. And that's the way you can overcome the devil. And you don't have to be bound and fettered with guilt and and in doubt and wonder because you've got the sea of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want you to think lastly, the spring of redemption. Notice these words, according to the riches of his grace. You see, it was grace that planned redemption. It was grace that provided it. It was grace that performed it. It's grace that will bring it to completion. It's grace that applies it. The measure of God is to forgive sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, not out of, that's interesting, but according to. So suppose I met a billionaire, and I said to that billionaire, maybe it's Donald Trump, if he comes to Belfast, I'd maybe go and meet him, and I'd say, Mr. Trump, you're a billionaire, and I would like a contribution for our new church in Carrie Duff. And suppose Donald Trump says, you're not a bad looking fella I'll tell you what There's a cheque for a hundred pound Now remember he's a billionaire 
Well, well, that's very good of him, isn't it? But he has given me a gift out of his riches. Not according to his riches. And there's a difference. But suppose Donald Trump met me in Belfast and said, you're a really good looking fella. Like you very much. Appreciate what you're doing. Here's a blank check. And I want you to go and fill it out. Whatever you need. You see, that would be according to his riches. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now let me close with this illustration. A young woman started attending a church. A particular Baptist church. (coughs) United States of America. And she came from a rough past. Life of alcohol. Life of drugs. This young girl lived a life of ill repute in the streets for many, many, many years. And she got gloriously saved in that little Baptist church. And the change was evident. And she became a a Sunday school teacher. And she attended every Lord's Day morning and evening. And of course, over time, she, she caught the eye of the pastor's son. And they started courting and entered into a relationship. And, and, then, and then they got engaged. And then they started setting wedding plans. And then the talk started. The tongues were wagging. There was gossip going on in that church. Is that a suitable young woman for the pastor's son? The gossip got so bad that they called a church meeting, which they do in Baptist circles. The meeting was hot and heavy. And people were saying, well, I don't think that this is a suitable young woman for the pastor's son of our church to be getting married to. And the pastor's son could stick it no more. And he stood up and this is what he said. And this is a true story. This is what he said. My fiancé's past is not on trial here. You're questioning the ability of the blood To wash her sin. And today you're putting the blood on trial. Does the blood wash sin away or not? You think of the question, what can wash away my sin? You've already answered it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Is the blood adequate or not? And if the blood has washed sin away, whether it's a life of alcohol or whether it's a life of prostitution or whether it's a life of drug abuse or whatever, and Christ has changed and transformed and saved the life, then glory to God. That's according to the riches of his grace. And that's the spring of redemption. Grace has planned it. Grace has produced it. Grace has purchased it. Grace has provided it. And glory to God, grace applies it. Let me ask you, have you tasted the grace of God tonight? Have you a testimony that your life has been changed and transformed and that the blood has washed and dealt with every sin? Only you can answer the question, redemption through his blood. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to you this evening. Thank you for coming and thank you for listening.